Welcome to the King's Word Bible Study. Today our topic is going to be, Wind of the Holy Spirit. Let's begin today in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, beginning in the first verse, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bluff where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. As we just saw, verse 8 told us, The wind bluff where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. This is an interesting verse, and an interesting comparison that's made. We're told that the Holy Spirit is like the wind in His operations. The wind stands out from all creation as something unique, unlike anything else. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit stands out in the spiritual realm as truly unique. In this chapter, we find Jesus telling Nicodemus all about the new birth, all about being born again. So we know from what came right before and right after that this comparison needs to be understood in light of this context. This isn't just a comparison between the spirit and wind, although it is that too. It's also an analogy by which God was trying to communicate to Nicodemus and to us the realities of the inner workings and operations of the Holy Spirit in our new birth. Many Christians have a tendency to overemphasize man's role in the new birth while underemphasizing the spirit's role. They, in doing this, attempt to elevate man's agency over that of the spirit. That's not to say that man doesn't have a role in his salvation. He definitely does. His role is to repent and accept Christ as his Savior, which is no small role. That's a drastic change that alters every area of his life. The Spirit's role, however, is the far more necessary one. Without the Spirit's intervening in the man's life, man would never be saved. There's nothing in man, nothing good, nothing righteous, nothing exemplary that would make him able to come to a decision like that on his own without the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit without the inner longing, inner impulse, and inner drawing from God's Spirit. John 6 and 44 tells us, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. The reason why man can't do it himself all alone is what we find in 1 Corinthians 2 and 14, which says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man, our default state of being, spiritually blind, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, can't discern spiritual realities, especially the need to be saved. That's the greatest of all spiritual realities. The natural man doesn't see his need on his own. He needs the Holy Spirit to draw him to that decision, to give him a longing and a desire to come to Christ. And it's obvious that it has to be this way. Romans 8 and 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The key phrase there is neither indeed can be. How does the carnal mind in nature, 
which is an arrow against and hostile towards God, and even the idea of God, come to desire and long for a relationship with Him. That's so far beyond the limits of our nature that it can't be just man alone acting as a free agent to come to that place. There must be an intervention from the Holy Spirit. He has to impress upon our hearts that desire. That doesn't rob us of our free will. It actually increases it, because now we have a real choice to make, an eternal choice, either taking God at His word and allowing Him into our heart, or continuing on the dark path that we've already been heading down. God will never infringe upon your free will. That would go against His righteousness and His justice. But He also never goes against His sovereignty, which is the highest law of the land. Although it may sound like it at first glance, that's not a contradiction, because our free will doesn't exist outside of His sovereignty as two different entities that can be mutually exclusive. It doesn't work that way at all. Our free will operates within His sovereignty, the same way that time and eternity aren't separate, but time exists within eternity. This changes the way that we look at soul winning, which should always be one of our greatest desires. We should want to see people come to Christ and start a new life with Him. There's no greater feeling in all the world than knowing that we got to be used as a vessel by God in someone's salvation. But we need to be careful. If we make the mistake of emphasizing man's role and not the spirit's, we can make some very misleading statements and project an image of the saved life to them that later on won't match the reality that they see in front of them. It's easy to see the danger in this. It's said earlier in John 6 and 44 that the Father draws him. But if we try to take the Father's place and do the drawing ourselves, relying on our own strength and powers of persuasion to try to entice them to come to Christ, then we're attempting to take God's place. That doesn't mean that we have bad intentions. Many times it's the direct opposite. Many times we have the best intentions. We really long to see them come to Christ. But we can't attempt to take the Spirit's place, whether intentionally or unintentionally. We get caught up in the moment, and we forget the realities that we all inherently know. The blind and the natural can't heal themselves, and no other person can heal them. They need Jesus to heal them. It's the same in spiritual healing leading to salvation. The sinner can't save himself, and we know all too well that we can't save him either. He needs Jesus to save him. He needs the Holy Spirit to remove the scales from his eyes that he might see. We're to lead others to Christ, and once we did what we were called to do, we have to let the Spirit do his work. The wording that we use in these situations is important too. We always say that we're leading someone to Christ, and that's good. That's what we should do. But once we lead them to Him, once they reach their destination, we need to take a step back and let the Lord do the work that He does best. We need to let the Lord work in their heart. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, Paul tells us, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. We skew this order when we put all the emphasis on man's side of the equation. We want to do the planting, we want to water the seeds, and then we want to give the increase too, something that it's completely impossible for us to do. We want it to be all our own work. The reason why it's not supposed to be all our own work, the reason why God gives the increase himself instead of relying on man to exert his own agency in the matter, is because then he gets all the glory, which is what he's due. Otherwise, if it was all our work, we would try to steal the glory. 1 Corinthians in chapter 3 goes on to say in the 7th and 8th verses, so then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. We need to let our labor be our labor, and let the Holy Spirit do his labor. He called us to do the planting and watering. Instead of trying to give the increase too, we should focus on trying to do our planting and watering in the best way possible, 
in a way that honors and glorifies God, trusting Him to give the increase that He promises in His Word. When man doesn't get to do it all himself, which is invariably what always happens in every case because it's not within his ability to do it all, the carnal mind starts to be highly critical of the work that it didn't perform itself, which in this case means being critical of the Spirit's work in someone's life, which is incredibly dangerous territory. This is where the analogy of the wind is incredibly helpful. Some people end up wandering into this dangerous territory simply for the reason of not understanding the mysteries and operations of the Spirit, although these things are made clearly evident in the Word. We need to take a closer look at the wind and see what it is about wind that makes its operations so similar to those of the Spirit and see how the lessons we take from the wind can help us understand the Spirit's influence in the life of someone new to Christ. The first thing that we need to note about the wind is that it's sovereign. It's directed by God. As verse 8 told us, the wind bluff where it listeth. It goes where it wants. It's not controlled by anyone or anything. It's completely free to make its own choice as to where to blow and where not to blow. We find the same to be true of the Spirit, but only more so. When we're trying to lead others to Christ, we have to be aware of His sovereignty, of reaching out and touching who He will when He will. Sometimes, and actually the majority of times, He touches the people we would least expect. We get so caught up in our natural ways that we're always looking for people to have some merit, some goodness in them that makes it so that they're a better candidate for salvation over someone else who we arbitrarily deem to be worse, even though nothing could be more against the scripture than that. We feel confused when he chooses some people, but we have to yield to his wisdom and his will, because as God, he can do whatsoever he pleases, just like the wind. We find plenty of evidence in the Bible to authenticate that the Spirit intentionally operates this way. Matthew 11.25 says, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 29 says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, have God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's the prostitutes and tax collectors who come into the flock before the Pharisees and the lawyers. It's the unlearned fishermen who become the disciples before the learned scholars of the Sanhedrin. Why? Because as verse 29 said, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God gets all the glory when these people, who seem to be irredeemable in the eyes of carnal natural man, have the Holy Spirit touch their life and become transformed by the renewing of their mind, and their life becomes a testament of God's perfect will and complete sovereignty. Their life proves, as Romans 12 and 2 says, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We can't try to put God in a box, restricting Him to our own made-up unbiblical standards, and then get mad when He doesn't follow our rules. Just because God saves someone we don't think He will or He should, doesn't mean that we get some type of exemption from reaching out to them and planting and watering the seed of the gospel in their life. We must do it. It's a command. It's part of our mission to an unsaved, unenlightened world. We have to subject our feelings and our carnal thoughts to the Spirit, because we know that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We can't let our weakness be the reason someone doesn't come to Christ. We have to let the Spirit's will draw them to Himself, using us as the vehicle to do so. That's an honor that we'll never know or experience if we keep trying to interject ourselves in our will in front of His. The next thing that we can learn about the wind is that it comes in different degrees, 
different levels of force. There's some wind that's just a gentle breeze that just barely rustles the leaves. And then there's winds that are gale force, hurricane force, tornado winds that will rip houses apart and tear entire towns to pieces. Wind comes in different variations, and so does the work of the Holy Spirit. This is where so many Christians go wrong in their perception. Man has a desire for the Spirit's work to be uniform so that they can fully understand it. If it was uniform, they could predict and measure it and its progress. God knows that inclination of the human heart, which is the very reason why it doesn't work like that. The Holy Spirit's work is unpredictable. It varies. It comes in different forms and degrees. It comes to one and not another, and it comes suddenly to one and takes a long time with another. There's no uniformity to it other than the type of work itself. This prevents man from becoming puffed up with supposed knowledge of the mysteries of the working of the Spirit. If he can understand it, it's not long before he feels like he can control it, and that's beyond dangerous for obvious reasons. When some people get saved, the Lord works slowly on their heart, just like the soft gentle breeze that barely rustles the leaves. This means that there's not a sudden visible change. There's no drastic reformation that all can see. It may even seem to some like nothing's happening at all, and that no change is coming about. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean that it's not happening deep down inside, in the heart, which is where it's most important. The other changes can come later. People are all too quick to criticize the newly saved, telling them that they're not changing fast enough, they're not showing forth the fruits of the Spirit, they're not acting like they have a renewed mind. But those things take time. We have to have patience. We have to be compassionate towards them. The fruits of the Spirit start as seeds, just like all fruits do, and they grow stronger and healthier as they're properly cultivated. So does a renewed mind. Sometimes it takes time to show itself. If we don't have grace on these people, they'll start to think that they're doing something wrong, that they're not good enough, that they're not doing enough, or any other type of similar reaction. This gets them to focus on themselves and their performance, instead of on God and on His Son's performance on Calvary. Instead of letting them grow, letting the Spirit have His way in their heart, we want to micromanage the Spirit's progress and get mad at God and the person when the progress isn't automatically forthcoming or evident. That gives the person an incredibly inaccurate view of the Spirit's working and just leads to hurt and disappointment in themselves and others and worst of all in God. Sometimes the Spirit's work in someone's life will be drastic. It'll be immediately evident. It'll be so clear that you couldn't possibly miss it. Just like Paul, it could be a road to Damascus type of change. But that doesn't mean that if it doesn't happen that exact same way, that it's not happening at all. It's great if it does happen that way, then we'll know for sure that God is working in them, but we can't limit God in that way. We know that He's promised if He begins a good work to bring it to completion. So why don't we trust Him to do what He's promised to do? We can't make people feel bad and insecure about themselves for what we perceive to be no progress. And we can't do the opposite either, which is equally dangerous. We can't make someone feel so good about their progress that they get puffed up and prideful. Both of those, insecurity and pride, lead to the same place. They're two sides of the same coin. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in the fourth verse, it says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, 
to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kind of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one, and have many members, and all the members of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. Here we find the same concept, only reinforced. There's diversity in the Spirit's gifts, differences in the administering of the gifts, differences in the operation of the gifts. Difference is clearly the key word. There's variation, not uniformity. So we can't turn around and demand uniformity when God makes it clear that He doesn't work that way. People's relationships with Christ develop in different ways, on different timetables. Some do so faster, some slower. Some go deep with the Lord, some stay on the shallow end. Some want all of the Lord, and some are content with just a little bit. There's differences. And why is that? It's because the Spirit, like the wind, does as He pleases. His sovereignty over man and His will allows Him to do as He sees fit. We see that reiterated in verse 11, which told us, But all these work at the one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. The key phrase there is as he will. His will is the only thing that dictates his actions and the timing and progression of those actions. Man has no say in the matter other than to either submit and let the Spirit have his way or to resist and fight the moving of the Spirit in his life. It is true that we know a tree by the fruit that it bears, and over the course of time, if we don't see the fruits of the Spirit manifest, then there's definitely cause to be concerned. But when a person is first saved, when they're just starting out, we can't expect their life to be like a fully grown tree, producing fully ripe fruit. God will bring His Word to pass in them. The Spirit will lead and guide them into all truth, and He will take care of their growth and watch over them, just like He always does and always has done with us. God gives the increase. Let Him do it in His own time. Don't rush or slow down the process. Take a step back and let Him work. The last thing that we need to look at as it relates to the wind is that wind will just blow in one small local area or it can blow for miles in a vast area. And the same is true of the Spirit. This is especially true when we see revivals. Sometimes revivals will be sparked in little pockets here and there. And sometimes they'll take over towns, states, and even countries. He goes where He wills to go and touches who He wills to touch. Today we need to ask the Holy Spirit to send His winds our way, to touch us again, to send revival to His people again. We need His touch one more time, because on our own we can't do it. It's only with His strength and enabling power, His compelling grace and His drawing power that we can see the revival that we all know that we so desperately need. Today can be a new day for the church. Today can be an incredible, powerful, spirit-filled day, but we have to stop trying to do it all ourselves and let the Spirit work in and through us as He reaches out to draw in those around us. Maybe the only thing stopping our friends and families from coming to Christ isn't the devil. Maybe it's us. Maybe it's our insistence on being the ones to give the increase that becomes the very thing that prevents that increase from happening. Acts 2 and 2 tells us, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. A rushing mighty wind, that's what changed the day of Pentecost. The Spirit came in and did an incredible, drastic, life-altering work, and we need the same thing today. Jeremiah 10 and 13 says in the English Standard Version, When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and He brings forth the wind from His storehouses. 
The Lord has storehouses of wind set apart for this day. We need him to utter his voice, to speak the word so that his servants can be healed. It's time that we call upon him to send forth the wind and fill his house with his spirit again. Let's close in prayer. Lord, today we thank you that you removed the scales from our eyes that we might see. We thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit to put within us that longing desire, that longing impulse to come to you. And Lord, we thank you that you gave us the understanding and the wisdom to act on that desire, to take you at your word and start a new life with you. Lord, today we call upon you to send the wind of your Holy Spirit into our lives to fill us to overflowing with your Spirit and into the lives of all those around us to put that same inner longing and inner desire upon their heart so that they could be drawn to you. And Lord, we thank you for the honor of being used as a vessel to allow that to take place. Lord, we thank you for all the salvations, all the healings, all the deliverances that are about to spring forth. Lord, we thank you for the new work that you are about to do. We thank you for the revival that we know is coming. And Lord, we thank you for all the great things that you have done, all the great things that you're doing right now, and all the incredible, amazing, great things that you have set apart for your people. We know that the wind is coming again, and we thank you that it's going to be just like on the day of Pentecost, a rushing mighty wind, and it's going to have the same effect, bringing people all around the world into the flock. Lord, we give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want to have the Holy Spirit, give the increase in your life and have Jesus as a part of your life today. All you need to do is to invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. You then need to repent of your sins and ask for his forgiveness. Then you trust that you've been forgiven and you ask for his free gift of eternal life. Now, if you prayed this from a sincere heart and you truly meant it, then you are now a part of the family of God. Welcome to God's family. We want to thank everybody for listening today. We appreciate you taking out your time to spend with us. If you'd like to give us feedback and tell us how much you appreciate this show, you can contact us at Kingsport Bible Study at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about this program and this ministry, you can visit kingswordbible.com. We appreciate also if you write a review from wherever you're listening to this podcast from. And if you follow and subscribe, so that more people can hear the King's Word for themselves. God bless you. We want you to know that we love you all. And we will see you next week as we continue to study the King's Word together.